Welcome to the last webinar of this amazing series. It has been quite a journey and Tanya and Evie over Atlantic have been the fearless leaders in really bringing this group together along with a number of other folks from the other fellowship programs. It is one of the silver linings of the pandemic to have brought all of these amazing minds and speakers together. Before we get going, I would love to pause for a moment to remember those we've lost in 2020, whether due to COVID or a particular relevance today, the climate disasters that are happening all over the world. So if we can take a moment to pause and think about the folks we've lost. Thank you. Let me turn it over to you, Tanya. Thank you so much, Meg, for that beautiful welcome. It's been such a pleasure to work with you as the CEO of the Roddenberry Foundations. And it's so great to have the fellows from those programs, Atlantic and Roddenberry and all other programs, coming to join us as we talk about climate change, which seems really pertinent and important given what's been happening alongside the pandemic. Yesterday, many of you will have heard the United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres say that humanity is waging what he described quite provocatively as a suicidal war on the natural world. In an address titled The State of the Planet, he implored world leaders to come together to cut emissions and take decisive action to save the world and its people from imminent catastrophe. It appears the world attention is now refocusing on urgent climate crisis underway as the development of coronavirus vaccines has provided some room to look at the state of humanity more holistically than we've been able to in recent months. So what is our current state in relation to climate change? And are the lessons to be gleaned from how we responded to COVID-19 evident and can they be applied in this case? To explore these questions, we are really fortunate to have three speakers today who are working in the space of climate change and action. The first of these speakers today is Jackie Patterson. Jacqueline Patterson is the Senior Director of the NAACP, focused on environmental and climate justice program. Since 2007, she has served as coordinator and co-founder of Women of Color United, Jackie has worked as a researcher, program manager, coordinator, advocate, and activist working on women's rights, violence against women, HIV and AIDS, racial justice, economic justice, including environmental and climate justice, so a multidimensional approach to this topic. Patterson served as senior women's rights policy analyst for Action Aid, where she integrated a women's rights lens for the issues of food rights macroeconomics and climate justice, as well as the intersection of violence against women and HIV AIDS, as mentioned. Jackie, it's such a privilege to have you here. Thank you for following the call to give us an update or a sense of where are we when we talk about climate justice and the state of the world in relation to that. Are there a lesson to learn? So excited to hear your remarks, Jackie. It's now over to you. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate you. Thanks to the Atlantic Institute and the Roddenberry Foundation, as well as to the Rhodes Trust, Obama Foundation, and the Schmidt Science Fellows for co-sponsoring this conversation. Thank you to Meg, who connected me, and also to Tanya for your awesome communication and organizing and for moderating the session. I would say it's a pleasure to be here with you all, although I definitely long for the day when we can come together to discuss much lighter topics. But in the meantime, this is where we are. For the NAACP, as a civil rights organization, the topic of addressing climate change in the context and in conjunction with COVID-19 
particularly when we overlay it with being in the midst of a racial awakening, it's an essential discussion within our civil rights mission. As we all know, the systemic inequities that make certain populations differentially vulnerable to the various impacts of COVID-19 are the same systemic underpinnings that comprise the root causes driving environmental injustice, including climate change. Between racism and xenophobia and sexism, they all combine with poverty, housing insecurity, racial profiling, differential access to healthcare, under-resourced education, privatized criminal justice, And these are all driving and exacerbating factors that are forming layers of oppression for certain communities, populations, individuals. And then to put a fine point on it, these factors combine to result in disproportionate exposure to pollution that attacks the lungs, rendering communities even more vulnerable to COVID-19 that also targets the lungs while also contributing to the greenhouse gas emission and pollution burden that drives climate change. These are all critical commonalities and interconnections. A recent study found that even small increases in fine particulate matter, which is known as PM2.5, have an outsized effect on COVID-19 in the United States. Harvard University found that an increase of just one microgram per cubic meter correspond to a 15% increase in COVID-19 mortality. The evidence shows that people who have been living in places that are more polluted over time, they're more likely to die from the coronavirus. In the Harvard study, which looked at 3,080 counties in the United States, people who had lived in the counties with long-term pollution exposure for 15 to 20 years had significantly higher mortality rates likely due to the higher risk of existing respiratory and heart disease in the areas of high pollution. Air pollution is also known to weaken the immune system, which further compromises people's ability to fight off infection. So when we see already the racial lines by which this is cut, to add to the injustice, African-American and Latinx people are typically exposed to 56% and 63% respectively more PM2.5 pollution than they produce through consumption and daily activities. Then we look at the sharp contrast, non-Hispanic white people are typically exposed to 17% less pollution than they produce. So just as African-American Latinx people are less likely to contribute to the greenhouse gas emissions that drive climate change, yet we are all much more severely impacted by climate change. So these are the roots of these injustices and the links between these two challenges. Furthermore, when we look at the health effects that are associated with indoor air pollutants, including respiratory illnesses, heart disease, and cancer, each of which have been linked to increased vulnerability to mortality due to COVID-19, African-Americans are more likely to have respiratory conditions exacerbated by indoor air pollution. COVID-19 has resulted in an increase in toxic poisoning due to exposure to cleaners and to disinfectants. And COVID-19 is compounding an already dangerous level of African-American exposure to toxins between exposure at work and exposure through intense interactions and sanitizing during compliance with stay-at-home orders. So these are just, again, the kind of toxic mix of challenges for certain communities. Once again, we have a political context that prioritizes protecting the profits of big corporations while comparatively neglecting to advance action at the scale and depth that truly upholds the well-being of people. As we talked about in the NAACP's fossil-fueled foolery report last year, the tie between corporate interests and some of our policymakers and our policies are far too enmeshed. 
instead of strengthening regulations to reinforce protections for communities made vulnerable by poor air quality. We have an administration that has rolled back over 100 regulations in the context of COVID-19 specifically, using it as justification for rolling back regulations to give relief to companies, but then give a death sentence to communities. So all of this combines to ensure that Black, Indigenous, and other communities are facing the harshest fallout of the direct impacts of COVID-19, just as we in the environmental justice community saw with Hurricane Katrina, the BP oil drilling disaster, and beyond, and each and every one of these disasters, including the COVID-19 pandemic. With racism as a through line that imperils us at every turn, not just in the extreme circumstances such as disasters, but merely when we're walking in the park, making a purchase in the store, jogging down the street, sleeping in a dorm hallway, sleeping in our own bedroom, in our own homes, or just breathing air. These are simple actions that white people can take for granted. A lot is overgeneralizing, but recognizing that not everyone can but who can take it for granted as not risky to their very existence. Yet time and time again, we've seen how structural inequities lead to inequities in health, well-being, and actual existence. The dichotomy between a value of essential work but devaluing of essential workers that render people who are most vulnerable in harm's way with scant protections and too few rights is another form of injustice that we see in common. We see this in the context of COVID-19 and in the context of a fossil fuel industry having lost 76,000 coal miners to black lung disease, while the trade association for their employers, the National Mining Association, has lobbied against coal dust regulations. Then we have the modern day redlining, which leads to under-resourced infrastructure and lack of choices in our communities. We have 71% of African-Americans living in counties in violation of federal air pollution standards. We have the domination of policies by big agriculture and domination of our markets with foods higher in sodium and sugar and preservatives. The lack of green spaces made us less likely to get exercise. The combination of which leads to the illnesses that have made us more vulnerable to COVID-19 at worst and shortens our lifespan and quality of life even in the absence of the pandemic. At every turn, the deck is stacked against us. And the people who pay the price include people like the Louisiana matriarch, Antoinette Franklin, and her three sons living in one of our nation's most polluted petrochemical corridors. They all died within days of each other because of COVID-19. While the companies polluting our communities continue to rake in profits with their unfettered pollution, even less fettered in the context of COVID-19, thanks to the rollback of these regulations. And the Dow Jones industrial average soars, billionaires become multi-billionaires, and our communities continue to bury our community members, our family members, and so forth. In my last couple of minutes, I will pivot to solutions and hopefully go into a lighter note here. Because the good news is that our communities are organizing ourselves to build solutions to what's before us now, not only with COVID-19, but also including the challenge of climate change, given the common underpinnings and impacts. We saw the uprisings that have taken place, and we've seen the organizing that has taken place. Frontline communities are rising up and putting together platforms of demands at the federal, state, and local level. We have the Red, Black, and Green New Deal. We have the Breathe Act. 
And at the same time, we are implementing the changes on the front lines. We're not just waiting for policies. We're forging linkages, organization to government entity, nonprofit to nonprofit, community to community, family to family, person to person, and organizing mutual aid and so forth. Communities are demanding reinstatement and strengthening of environmental regulations. We're demanding research and data on racial impact analysis. We're doing our own testing and monitoring of air, water, and soil quality. We're calling for stronger regulations on household projects and more inclusive toxic release inventory. Communities want policies that support localism and regenerative design, as well as clean energy and building and vehicle electrification. Communities are calling for the retirement of coal debt of rural electric co-ops that are struggling to survive and serve their member owners. Communities are rising up against racism. So at the same time, we are building the world that we want. We're setting up locally controlled, sustainable food systems. Women are leading on restoring our relationship with the land. Women are pushing back on water shutoffs while establishing water sovereignty models. We are winning elections. We're comforting those in mourning while pushing for the policies and practices we need to establish a regenerative caring economy that advances health care for all, frees people who are in prison, provides income for those whose livelihoods are in jeopardy, and provides protections for those who are on the front lines, and the list goes on. So the people in power, we are really calling as we're stewarding in a new administration, we're saying the people in power need to get behind those on the front lines of COVID and climate injustices. And so as we scale up and scale deep for the real solutions that we need. So looking forward to the continued conversation with you all and hopefully continuing to working arm in arm to build this movement. Thank you so much. Wow, very powerful stuff. Thank you so much, Jackie, for that really comprehensive picture you painted. And yes, it is very bleak when you think about, we use the phrase, toxic mix of challenges and how just like the coronavirus pandemic, the climate crisis also gendered and racialized and also has to do with economic status. And the result is that the most marginalized in society tend to be black and brown women and men across the world. The glimmer of hope you did offer is that the power is in our hands. Your examples around community organizing has been a running thread throughout our webinar series around finding our own solutions as communities and then also calling leadership to account and to join our actions as we try and push back against the outcomes of the state we find ourselves in. So we honor you and thank you for the work you've been doing to support this. And now it's absolutely my pleasure to introduce Dr. David Schimmel. He's a senior research scientist and technical group supervisor for carbon and ecosystems at the Jet Propulsion Lab, California Institute of Technology in Pasadena. Prior to that, he served as founding principal investigator and chief scientist for the National Ecological Observatory, senior scientist at the National Center for Atmospheric Research and founding director of the Max Planck Institute for Biogeochemistry in Germany. He's the author of several books, 200 research papers in ecosystem and climate science with a focus on global carbon cycle. And you can read more about Dr. David Schimmel, but I think it's going to be very interesting, Dr. Schimmel, to get your take on what's been happening with the climate as we explore issues of pollution and their connection to the spread of COVID, among other things. Essentially, we welcome your scientific insights on this panel, and we look forward to hearing from you. Over to you at this point. Thank you very much. I will tell you what we've learned about the relationship between the COVID pandemic, the drastic changes to human behavior through the shutdowns, and the influence of that on air pollution 
and greenhouse gas emissions. First, let me tell you that very soon after the shutdown, a group of us convened, we called it a workshop or an institute, but it was a completely virtual activity organized by the Jet Propulsion Lab and the California Institute of Technology's Keck Institute for Space Studies. That institute known as KISS <laughs> is a think and do tank that brings unique groups of folks together to think and do, to design and to propose and to analyze issues of scientific, environmental and societal concern. This was a very interesting activity. We always thought that the magic was getting a group of very diverse individuals from around the world in a room together. And in this case, we began by getting into a virtual room with a group of about 20 or 25 people talking about what we could see from space on the ground, from citizen observations, from social media data, from the press about the COVID epidemic as a phenomenon in the environment, not just in human health. And we did have, I should say, environmental health and environmental justice experts as part of this group. But in the spirit of this event, it was an open activity. So while we began by inviting a number of folks to participate, we encouraged each of those folks to reach out to their colleagues, to their communities, to their networks, and bring in more people who were concerned, who were expert, who had local knowledge. And that involved people in environmental management, environmental justice, environmental observations from, in particular, the Los Angeles and San Francisco communities, all embedded in the global perspective that NASA provides from its fleet of remote sensing instruments. Those instruments measure many of the key constituents that our previous speaker spoke of. We can observe indirectly PM 2.5, many of the air pollution gases that cause health consequences, reactive nitrogen, ozone, and other constituents. And we also measure greenhouse gases from space, carbon dioxide and methane. Now, we also worked with groups that were combining and compiling literally day-by-day -day estimates from a wide variety of types of information, estimates of the reductions in the emissions in carbon dioxide and other pollutants and pollutant precursors worldwide. So that as a group of what wound up being close to 100 people, we were able to compile an integrated picture of what was happening worldwide from our space-based and collegial network sources of information. And then in a few very specific case studies, specifically the diverse megalopolises of Los Angeles and the Bay Area, where we could look almost minute by minute at what was happening to traffic, transportation, energy use, shopping, and then all of the social media metrics that were being compiled from things like Google Maps and other big data sources. So what happened with COVID and these huge, huge sacrifices that people made to reduce their exposure to the disease or not, as the case was already discussed, many people dubbed critical workers were unable to protect themselves by sheltering at home. In most of the cities of the world, 
the use of automobiles for transportation went down rather significantly. In some parts of the world, China is a good example, parts of Europe, another example where diesel is very common, pollution emissions went down rather dramatically. In fact, in many cities, air quality improved quite significantly beginning in April or May and carrying on even to the present in some areas. That was because mainly of reductions in public and private transportation, so that ozone levels in many cases went down and particulate emissions and particulate impacts on health were significantly reduced. Not uniformly, even within cities, there were differential impacts on this, but generally speaking. However, the world exists with a very wide range of chemical environments in our urban environments. In some cities, air quality either did not really improve or, in fact, even got worse. I'm going to come back to what this means for the spirit of this unique event after I talk about greenhouse gases. So there's been a great deal of press about the dramatic reductions in carbon dioxide emissions as a result of the tremendous sacrifices that people made in order to attempt to protect themselves. And in many cases, local emissions, emissions at the urban scale, for example, in the mega cities of China, North America, Europe, South America, and some of the African cities, emissions were down between 10 and 30% even 40% during the peak of the shutdown period. And this resulted for the 2020 period, we anticipate in a reduction of global emissions of greenhouse gases of about 10%. Now let's put that in perspective. Carbon dioxide has been increasing in the atmosphere since the mid 1800s. And we now have over 150 years of accumulated emissions. How far back in time did we go? That is to say, if emissions in 2020 were 10% less than 2019, how many years back does that go? It only goes back to 2011. So the huge sacrifices, the tremendous suffering, the economic impacts only reduced us 10 out of the 150 years that we need to reverse emissions over. This was not a good way to reduce emissions. It put the burden of emission reductions on citizens, on individuals, and as was noted, communities of color and disadvantaged communities without actually making any difference to the climate. In fact, when you look at 2020 at Mauna Loa, the observatory at Mauna Loa, which is where we've historically measured carbon dioxide, that measurement is the one that we use to relate to the climate system. 2020 is visually indistinguishable from 2019. 10% reduction globally, given compensating effects by the oceans and the world's forests, given the mixing of the 2020 signal into 150 years of uncontrolled emissions, had no perceptible impact on the climate. Even at the margin, we would not expect the greenhouse gas effect in 2020 to be any less than that of 2019. And in some cities of the world, it actually went up 
as people spent more time at home and needed to make use of utilities, lighting, computer networks, and all of the things that in our Zoom world we do to compensate for not getting in a car, a bus, a train, or light rail. So the effects of this are very interesting. It really gives us a perspective on two things. One, that the emissions of greenhouse gases and the emissions of pollution fundamentally come from the same place. They come from transportation, energy production, manufacturing, cleaning fluids in cities, a significant source of air pollution. And when you reduce one side of this, you reduce the other. That is, the emissions, although they weren't strictly speaking proportional to each other because of the way the energy system works, were very strongly related to each other. And so we often manage air quality and climate as being in very separate buckets, but they're really fundamentally responding to the same social technological infrastructure and the same driving forces. And when one of them goes down, the other goes down. The flip side of that, though, is that the bulk of air pollution and greenhouse gases are not produced by things that are under the immediate control of people's choices. Rather, they come from the infrastructure that maintains our current society. And without change that infrastructure, we cannot reduce greenhouse gases, nor can we create healthier cities. The flip side, the very hopeful side, is that if we actually focus on reducing greenhouse gas emissions, if we make a real effort to create healthier cities with fewer emissions of particulates, and ozone-producing precursors, we're probably going to have a major impact on greenhouse gases. Now, there's all sorts of texture and detail to this, and all sorts of complexity, inequity, and paradoxical or seemingly paradoxical effects. But COVID was a giant experiment that allows us to go beyond talking about what mitigation might look like and see one version of mitigation, one that focuses on the individual choices of individual people. And it shows that the individual choices are not enough to affect the climate system. We have to have systemic change to energy production and consumption to the way in which we power our society. And I think that this is very, very synergistic with thinking about justice in how we change our society. Because in many cases, we ask everybody, and perhaps we ask the disadvantaged the most, or we appear to ask them to make the biggest sacrifices. But in fact, those sacrifices, while not in vain, will not fix the climate crisis. And it's, in fact, the very large entities that produce energy, that consume energy in very large quantities that need to change their behavior. Thank you very much. It's been a real privilege to be able to talk to this group. Thank you so much, Dr. Schimmel. That was really, really interesting to hear. And I think what stands out in what you said, and it's really great to hear those sentiments echoed by a scientist, is the fact that for a long time we've been pushed to change individual behavior. We recycle, we try to eat less meat, and while, as you pointed out so clearly, that can make an impact, we need to be paying attention to the systemic and infrastructural mechanisms that are in place that are actually the ones responsible for producing the negative outcomes as far as climate is concerned. And, you know, clear links to what Jacqueline said when she raised that we are still privileging profit over people. So 
really interesting connections there. Let me just expand on one thing that your comment suggested. Much of the greenhouse gas pollution comes from primary energy, from electricity. And of course, we people use most of that electricity. But unlike transportation, our meat consumption and so on, we typically have very limited choice over where we get our electricity from. We don't produce it ourselves and we don't choose how it's produced. And that's where the focus of much of our effort needs to be. Mm, Thank you. Very interesting, Dr. Shimov. I see that Dr. Mustafa Santiago Ali is with us. Welcome. It's my pleasure to introduce the final keynote for today or fire starter on this very important conversation on climate change. Dr. Mustafa is the Vice President of Environmental Justice, Climate and Community Revitalization for the National Wildlife Federation and also the founder and CEO of Revitalization Strategies. Before joining the NWF, Mustafa was the Senior Vice President for the Hip Hop Caucus, a national nonprofit and nonpartisan organization that connects the hip hop community to the civic process. As the HHC Senior VP, he led the strategic direction, inspection, and operation of the HHC's portfolio on climate, environmental justice, and community revitalization. Dr. Ali, it's such a privilege to have you with us. We are really excited to hear your remarks as the last speaker. So we welcome you now to share your thoughts with us all. Thank you. I'll just share a couple of things. Hopefully my voice lasts long enough. We have had an addiction to fossil fuels, and we have had an addiction to racism, and people have utilized those for their own benefits. Let me just share with you my frame for this. You cannot win on climate change if you don't win on environmental injustices that continue to happen. We know disproportionately where the fossil fuel facilities are located. And we know that for decades, our most vulnerable communities tried to get people to pay attention to the public health impacts that were happening inside of their communities, how they were being made sick, how their lives were being shortened. And unfortunately, we didn't have enough people paying attention at that time. We now know that those same toxic chemicals that were coming out of those stacks and out of piping inside of these facilities is that same pollution that is playing a role in warming up our oceans and our planet. So if we had paid attention to the environmental racism that was happening and the environmental injustices, because let me just call it out, we have lower wealth white communities who are also being impacted. If we had paid attention, we could have minimized some of the impacts that we see going on from climate injustices and the climate crises that we see ourselves facing both domestically in the United States and of course across our planet. If we had paid attention to the fact that we got 2.4 million miles of pipeline in the United States, fossil fuel pipeline, enough to go to the moon and back, to the moon again and back to the earth and on your way back to the moon and that that pipeline was running through farmland, running through low-income white land, and ending up in black and brown communities across our country, and we see this dynamic in other places as well, then we could have minimized some of these impacts that were going on and why we have to be focused in this moment on addressing that issue. And I heard just briefly some of the other speakers, but just let me call this out as well. 
We know that there are two other main drivers that are a part of what's going on with the climate crisis. One is the agricultural practices that we have, and the other one is around deforestation. And we know that it has been black and brown communities that have been defending for millennia our forest, our jungles, and many of the other areas that actually are part of the lungs of our planet. So if we had paid attention, we could have minimized. Now, understanding also that policy has played a critical role in the moment that we find ourselves in today. We know that race plays out in our transportation policies. We know that if you look at historically how roads have been used to break up communities, to bring wealth to certain communities and dump off pollution in other communities, then you have an understanding of how we better get really focused on our transportation-related sets of opportunities if we're going to address some of these issues. And I'm going to just take you a little bit further here because I want us to really understand the moment that we find ourselves in with a new administration coming in and how we can do better. My grandmother has a saying, and hopefully maybe some of your grandmothers or mothers had the same thing. My mom says, and my grandmother, when you know better, do better. So when we look at housing policies and the biases that have existed and how we have put lower wealth housing or sometimes even affordable housing in floodplains, in areas where we then allow facilities to surround these communities and literally strangle them, and how that also has played a role and the emissions that are going on, then we have an understanding also some of the places that we can focus on and how we can make real change happen. And let's just wrap this bow around this because I'm sure other speakers before me probably mentioned this. And I know my sister Jackie did because she's not gonna let it slide. When we look at COVID-19 and everyone now finally realizing that black and brown communities and indigenous communities have all these disparities that are going on, But we also understand now that these chronic medical conditions from these exposures have made our entire planet more vulnerable, and especially inside of our country, more vulnerable. And let me just anchor this in some reality that hopefully some of the other folks shared as we're talking about solutions for climate change. Because lots of times you have to anchor it in the reality of what's going on in people's lives for them to understand not only the severity, but the pathway forward. We've got 100,000 people in our country dying prematurely from air pollution in the United States of America. A country that is supposed to have some of the best environmental protections on the planet. How do you make that statement if you've got that many folks who are losing their lives? And this is before a COVID-19 moment. When the full analysis plays out around COVID and how many people have these medical conditions that came about as a part of their toxic exposures, then hopefully we'll get even more focused on what's going on. We got 24 million people in the United States that have asthma, 7 million kids. And disproportionately, once again, it is African-American, Latinx, and indigenous brothers and sisters who are the ones who are going to the emergency rooms and the ones who are losing their lives. But we've also got to understand that when we're talking about climate, we also have to be focused on the fact that we got 24 million people in the United States of America who are living in food deserts. We got 25 million people who are living in medically underserved areas or physician deserts. All of this is important in our environmental conversation, our COVID-19 conversation, and our climate change conversation. Because if we understand that we're gonna continue to have these climate crises, but yet we haven't built the infrastructure to deal with the issues that are going on inside these communities, then 
we understand where we need to be focused. And there are a number of other things that are going on as well. We've got 80 million people are uninsured and underinsured. And why is that important? Well, if we know that we're going to have more severe floods, we know we're going to have these extreme heat events that are happening. We know that hurricanes and wildfires and all these other types of things that are part of this mix are in the moment and even more are coming, then we've got to get people protected. We've got to also give people the ability and the capacity and the resources to be able to actually, the way that I say it is that so that they can actually fight back and so that we can move people from surviving to thriving. And we can do this in a number of different ways. And I'm sure some of the folks have already talked about it. We've got an administration coming in, the Biden administration, that is looking at $2 trillion in this set of climate activities and building. And we also got the infrastructure opportunities that are coming that give us a chance to help to rebuild these communities and do it in a way that is, one, going to help them to be more climate resistant, two, to be able to build wealth inside of those communities, and three, something that we never talk enough about, actually bringing hope back to communities. We've got so many folks who have been beat down time and time and time again, and they continue to look to folks, whether it is the federal or state governments or foundations or a number of others, and saying, do you hear me? Do you see me? And now we have a chance to respond in a very affirmative way. And we've also got a set of opportunities around this new climate economy that excites me if we do it right. We've seen how other economic sets of opportunities have actually not been very inclusive when it comes to folks of color or even lower wealth white communities. We got a chance to change that dynamic. We got a chance to bring hope and opportunities back to areas like Appalachia, one of the areas I was raised in. When I was coming up, I was raised in Appalachia and in Michigan. And that's a place where there are a number of opportunities around advanced manufacturing. When we talk about wind and solar and thermal and tidal and a number of these other sets of opportunities, these are places that we have to be focused on along with the Gulf Coast and a number of other areas. So we've got a chance, but we also got a clock that is ticking extremely quickly. When we look at the IPCC report, the National Climate Assessment Report, they've shared with us this time frame that we have to get it right. The question is, one, are we willing to prioritize these issues? And two, are we willing to finally embrace and uplift those voices from the front lines who have been the ones who've been doing this work, often without the resources, often without the support? And if we're willing to come together, we can actually win. It's not going to be easy. It's going to take a lot of sacrifice. It's going to take a lot of ingenuity and innovation. And we have to make sure that everyone is a part of that mix. So I'm going to stop there because I'm sure many of the things I just shared, folks have already touched on. But, you know, we just got to reinforce the fact that we cannot, and I'll say it again, and I hope my voice is clear enough that folks hear me. We cannot win on climate change if we do not win on environmental injustice. Dr. Ali, thank you. And thank you for, yes, echoing the sentiments of your two colleagues on the panel, but I think also bringing to light the fact that we talk about resistance. And I think it's important to share that one of the most dangerous spaces in which to be an activist, like you all are, is in the area of environmental justice and land rights. At this juncture, I do want to thank our panel and hand over to our executive director at the Atlantic Institute to close out what has been 12 webinars that have taken place over the course of the year and to talk about next steps. I'm looking forward to seeing you all 
2021 and we carry on with our fight for equality. Evie, it's wonderful to hear from you. So over to you. Thank you, Tanya. So it's my pleasure to briefly close this webinar as the final webinar, as Tanya was saying, in our Fellowship of Fellowship series in response to COVID-19. Although the most intimate in our series, so powerful and rich in terms of the conversations and insights and sharing that you have all given. So a huge thank you to our speakers, Mustafa, David and Jackie for your superb thought leadership and generous contribution of heart and mind to our conversations. This panel and the wider group on the call is a microcosm of the ecosystem of leaders that we are building both within the Atlantic Fellows community, but also as part of the Fellowship of Fellowship community. Also like to take the opportunity to thank our partners, Rhodes, Schmidt, Roddenberry and Obama, who have all contributed to this series. Over the past 12 webinars, more than 600 people have participated in these conversations on topics ranging from vaccine distribution, sustaining hope, racial justice and today climate justice. While topics and perspectives were diverse across speakers and participants, there was and has been solidarity and unity, not just in system analysis and root cause, but importantly, always focusing on humanity and the collective agency we have to find new solutions, new as in K in brackets, that focus on rebuild, restoration and reclamation. As our speaker said today, when you know better, do better. Finally, as the vaccines start to emerge and are distributed, we are perhaps at one of the most critical junctures in world history. Now is the opportunity to make decisions about what we have learned over the past 12 months through loss and heartbreak and what we will take forward and what we will not, a new world reimagined that has the potential to change the trajectory in terms of equity and justice. It would be remiss of me not to use this word with Roddenberry on the call, Meg, at warp speed, for example, the amount of money spent on vaccine development would have, could have made a significant dent in global poverty, tangible poverty, and that of the soul. Such is human nature, however, that there is a risk of reversion back to the old, to the known, to the certain, resulting in a profound loss of the agility and the activism that has emerged in the past 10 to 12 months. We have indeed met the enemy, and it is us, and likewise we have indeed met our friends, and it is us. So towards the end of January, we will be releasing the calendar of events for the Institute and for the Fellowship of Fellowship webinars for 2021, based on the best information we will have available to us at that time, especially in relation to the COVID vaccine. Please keep an eye out for this. And in the meantime, just huge thanks and deep appreciation to all of you. Wish you well. Continue to be safe over the coming weeks and months. Our thoughts continue to be with those around the world who are still on the front lines and dealing with the impact of the pandemic and of COVID. Particularly in the United States, each day continue to break records with the number of people who are dying well before their time, well before their time and also with new cases. But there is hope, there is light, and as leaders, one of our roles is to sustain hope, but it doesn't just happen, it's not just a thought, it is a consequence of action. So thank you, everyone.